Evolutionary.org presents Evolutionary Hardcore Podcast with your co-hosts, Steve from the American Underground and Mobster from the UK Iron Den. Get ready for the most hardcore and underground info in the industry. And here we go. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6... Episode 186, Evolutionary.org, hardcore podcast coming away. Dennis Wolf, the big bad wolf. Steve Schmee yep. and the mobster joining me from across the pond in the British Isles. How's it going? Not bad at all, fella. I, I think in his time, he may have had amongst the widest shoulders, certainly at one point, super broad, super muscular. And I think he's probably the second or third uh, Germanic origins bodybuilders that we've done in this podcast. Let's hit it. Yeah, so he's got German roots. Dennis Wolf got German roots, proved himself to be one of the top bodybuilders of his era. We're going to get into all his competitions. One of the amazing things that I saw, not only did he get first place in some of the toughest competitions, but also the Mr. Olympia routinely finishing top five, top five consistently year after year, which that to me is, is very impressive. Um, and as Mobster mentioned, also known for his small waist and large outer quad sweep. 5'11", 260 contest peak, 300 in the off season. He's a big guy. Don't want to run into him into a dark, in a dark alley. We're going to talk about his life successes and steroid cycle in this podcast. So talk about his early life for, uh, first. 1978, he was born. He was born in Tokmog, Kyrgyzstan. I apologize if I'm mispronouncing that. And Kyrgyzstan is way out there. It's, it's on the border of China, Uzbekistan, and Kazakhstan, where Mobster's uh, best friend Borat is from. But what was interesting yeah, yeah, yeah. is he was born to a German family. So mm-hmm. in that part of the world, very, very poor, did not have much food but his father worked hard for little pay. He focused on his studies and dreamed of a better life one day. In 1992, his family moved to Germany. He had to learn the language and adjust quickly as a teenager. In his late teens, he worked as a painter, 70 hours per week, and he spent his free time playing sports. He got into bodybuilding just at 18 years old, inspired by Arnold Schwarzenegger, who else? This led to him joining a gym with a friend. His friend gave up a few weeks while they were training, but Wolf was actually getting good results. So he fell in love with it. So that was, uh, you know, that's what happens. That's what happens for sure. So mobster, what are your thoughts so far? A quick comment is is the, the, the hard background, something I know Steve and I have addressed in in a previous podcast or two, we said that it's very few seriously successful athletes that have come from an easy life type background or whatever else i think and again this is just a guess that the area of the country or the area of the world and sorry that he came from it was either oil or mineral wealth steve so that, that would probably be the reason why his dad was grafting hard for a little pay and the idea that he was working as many as 70 hours a week uh, in his late teens it sets the foundation for hard work and it certainly sets the foundation for aspiring to a different kind of lifestyle as an athlete uh, whether that be soccer or whatever, you don't have 
I mean, we got. I'm trying to think, Steve. With the odd, very rare exception, I mean, even Arnold's dad was a police officer, so it wouldn't have been super hard. But for the most part, uh, Arnold, for example, aspiring to leave the small town, go to the big cities, in an office, the dream of being in America and succeeding there, is aspirational. It's it's so yeah. I I like the fact that he was doing the seventy hours a week. I don't know about you, with your upbringing, Steve, but sometimes these things make you. They, they can either grind you down or, they, or they, they make you. And I think for Dennis, it's made him. That's something which we'll get into in terms of what else he's had to do to become a great professional bodybuilder. But this background, how formative is it? How tough is that background, Steve, to go from there and your dad grafting for no money and you doing 70 hours a week, even in your teens? That's crazy amount of work for, for a teenager. And then becoming a world-class bodybuilder to come from that, that not poverty, but not much money and serious, serious hard work, proper physical labor, and then to become a world-class bodybuilder. That's quite a journey. Back to you, Steve. Let's talk about his early competitions. His first competition, he had a coach helping him. In 1999, he got second place in the heavyweight division at the NRW Newcomer Championships. Next year, he won the competition outright. And his mind was set to become a professional bodybuilder. For five years, he competed in over a dozen competitions as an amateur before getting his pro card at the 2005 IFBB World Championships, earning first place overall. So now he's on his way as a professional bodybuilder. He was very popular. His peak decade was the mid-2000s to mid-2010s, competed in 30 shows, he won several shows, 2007 Keystone Pro, 2011 Australian Pro, 2012 EVLS Prague Pro, 2014 Arnold Classic, which we discussed on the pre-show, and then 2014 EVLS Prague Pro again. Olympic Olympia finishes were impressive. He never won the Mr. Olympia, but boy, did he was he in there. He was in the mix year yeah. after year. 2006, 16th place. Then he jumped in 2007 to fifth place, 2008, fourth place, 2009, he had a fallback year, 16th place, 2010, back up to fifth place, then fifth place in 2011, sixth place in 2012, third place in 2013, fourth yeah. place in 2014 and 2015. What a run for this yeah. guy. Um, you know, that was incredible, incredible. Those, those two years are amazing, Steve. 14, let's say 13 and 14, those two years, third place, and then the following year, winning the Arnold. That makes you, you are the group of people that you're in is tiny. And it really is, that was his absolute peak. And it's undeniable at that time that, you know, you could say, oh, is he going to be that? I've, I've We've just done a, a, another podcast recording prior to this one when I said that athlete, to my mind, was never going to be Mr. Olympia. Here's a guy, 100% was a contender. You don't get to be third place in the Mr. Olympia and win the Arnold and not be a contender. And, you know, uh, how often those changed, and Rami's a good example of how it's changed, <coughs> and bodybuilding is very fair in that particular regards. But a, a Germanic bodybuilder, to be at that level, uh Arnold coming from Austria is, is, is Germanic, if not German. Um, it's, it's, it's kind of cool, Steve. And, and, and again, as I say, the background and everything else. So that's, that's a hell of a journey. And certainly 
I'll do Luke here from 2007 to 2015 with a couple of odd places. <coughs> He's in contention the whole damn time. <coughs> He's in the top five, top six every single year. His lowest places apart from those six things is six. And everything else is fourth place, fifth place the whole time. He's in that lineup. And that is a pretty good place to be. Recently, we've seen guys kind of drop in and drop out of that lineup. This is no seven years here, he's in the lineup with one year that he wasn't. So, six out of those seven years, he's there, he's in the final 10, he's in the final six. That's amazing. That's world, world class. Absolutely tiny number of people that are as good as that. Let's get back to the rest of it, Steve. Yeah, let's get back to it. So, he had some ups and downs. He came close to winning Mr. Olympia. 2016, that dream came to an end. He was going under the knife due to spinal surgery. We talked about this on the pre-show. I'm going to bring you in, Mobster, because you know a lot about this. His doctor said he had a nagging injury that kept getting worse due to his years of hardcore training. And to correct it, the last option was surgery. After he took a full year off and then started prepping for the Arnold Classic in 2018, he placed a very disappointing 12th place. So obviously this was the end of the bodybuilding career. And he blames a poor prep for his bad showing and said he only did it for his fans. So the spine guys, once the spine starts going, you know, the party's over. Obviously your spine is very important in weight training. I've had several herniated discs. If you've been weight training, doing heavy weights for years, you're going to have herniated discs. That's just part of the game. Your disc can yeah. only take so much. So the doctor, what the doctor told me, I went to a really good doctor. He told me that basically my disc and my spine are about 12 years older than my age. So I wasn't in a severe situation where I had to get surgery, but I was in a situation enough where, look, I had to back off. And I haven't trained heavy since. Since I got that MRI done and, and talked to my, uh, my ortho, I have not been able to train heavy, which is okay. I still enjoy weight training. I just have to do it in a much smarter way. But for a guy like this, you know, um, he made his bread and butter was lifting heavy ass weights, which Mobster is going to get into in a little bit. But for him to have to quit on that, it's got to be absolutely heartbreaking. But he accomplished a lot, so he can't really uh, be that upset. I'll talk about three things here, Steve. Firstly, let's let's talk about Dennis himself. So the I seem to recall something which I'll add as well, and I made some show notes as always. He had four herniated discs. You can find the list online, guys. I won't go out with the actual particular details, but it's out there very easy. But four, uh, the upper part of the uh, between the shoulder blades up to the base of the skull, four discs in that area. That's that's kind of fucked up. The operation fused three of those discs. So essentially he's going to lose some mobility there and, and, and restrict the movement of the spine. He said, one of the comments that Dennis himself made in regards to this in an interview said that he thinks that the mass, the sheer amount of mass, and I'm thinking it was somewhere around the 300 pound mark at one point, because he's relatively tall, Steve. Uh, he said was holding him together. The sheer mass of muscle, big, strong muscles, pulling on other parts of the body, et cetera, anchoring and pushing into the spine and the upper part of the neck there was what was holding him together. And sometimes, and I've said this to Steve in the pre-show, and this goes more for uh, other athletes, where we don't realise sometimes the impact we're having on our bodies until we have a break. And um, what I mean by that is if you go away on holiday, you have a two-week vacation, 
and you, you go out with all intentions of keeping the gym going, but you end up, you know what, I need to spend time with the wife, the kids, I'm going to go in a swimming pool, I'm going to chill out, I'm going to sunbathe, and you find stuff aching, Steve, sometimes for a week, sore joints, sore muscles and stuff like that, which you hadn't really noticed because you was phys being physically active, you was in the gym, you was hitting it, the endorphins are there. So that's one part. The second part is the wear and tear. I've, like you say, I've had issues with my back. And I've mentioned this in previous podcasts and online. We'll talk about 2016, literally wear and tear, which we just discussed in the previous podcast as well, what they call the physical age versus chronological age. I couldn't think of that word before. But essentially, it's the difference between the, the age of your body. So, for example, do you have the bone structure or the wear and tear of a 90-year-old, where chronologically, the time you've been alive might only be 60. And so... All athletes, and it's not just bodybuilders and weightlifters and strongmen, but all athletes. You are, if you are a world-class athlete, the percentage of people that do what you do is tiny. It, it is. If I've got world records, which I have, it means there's no one else done what I've done. Therefore, the risk factor for my for an injury for wear and tear is that much higher because I'm pushing myself to a place that no one else has been. It's as simple as that. And Dennis, as a world-class bodybuilder, will be training. And wear it and put wear and tear on his body. That only, as we can see here, in terms of the Arnold Classic, one there's only I think like eight or nine winners ever of the Arnold Classic because you've got some that have won multiple titles. In terms of his placing in the Mr. Olympia, third place. Uh, as I said on a previous uh, show, a thousand pro bodybuilders, uh, I think, is about right for the number of active people with pro cards. So he would have been one in a thousand, and certainly. Third on the planet, as we've said in other shows, when we talk about those kind of places, you are putting wear and tear on your body state. So there's there's that that's particular issue. And then, of course, um, um, having to have these operations. I think the thing that stuck in my mind, and I didn't see it when I was doing the pre-show research yesterday and a couple of days ago, but I seem to recall him having something like an abscess. And that abscess required looking at. And that's when he realized that just how herniated the discs were. So he had some sort of minor infection or something like that. They've gone off to check him out. He's had a scan, he's had a checkup, and they've discovered just how fucked up he is. And obviously what you've seen here again, coming back to competition, uh, blaming a ball prep, I think the reality is he's had his neck fused, he's put that wear and tear on his body, and you know, you're never the same again. And even again, I, go, I, I do this every time we do a, a podcast. To use myself as an example, there would be a time when I would have been at my optimal levels of strength as an all-round uh, measure. And arguably, for me, I'm trying to think now, Steve, I'm probably going to say, I mean, I think I started lifting around 2000 in terms of thinking about competition. 2003, 2004, started to get good. Ended up doing exhibitions, competing on the Arnold stage and the Mighty Mitts and other stuff. And that was around 2010. I think I competed a few more times after that. I did really well 2012, 2013. And then after that, I have certain things that I'm very, very good at, but I'm no longer that well-rounded kick your ass no matter what the lift is in the competition in the niche that I was lifting in. And that's just something that happens. If you have an operation like Dennis and you had your neck fused, and you might have had that abscess that I think I, I recall, then it's it's going to be really, really, really different. You'd have to be kind of superhuman to come back from that, Steve, and still be as world-class as you was before. So he talks about coming back for his fans. 
if I remember rightly, he, he, he looked like he'd lost 20 or 30 pounds. He wasn't that super ball shouldered crazy quad, uh, close to 300 pounds bodybuilder. I think he come back, you know, 30 or 40 pounds less, Steve. And it's, it is really difficult. It, you talked about pro football players in the States with knee injuries and whatever else. And um, it's a rare athlete that can come back from some crazy injury like that and become world-class or a contender for being you know, the champion, national champion or world champion. It's very, very small amount of people that are like that. And so, so, uh, you can have the best genetics in the world. And Dennis certainly had those kind of genetics. It's really, really difficult to come back. It's a major operation. Uh, your mobility is never going to be the same as it once was. And uh, the idea that perhaps you could come back from that and be a contender for top, 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 top place in the Olympia, it's unlikely. And, and that's a shame because he was a, a very, very good bodybuilder in his time. Yeah, back to you, Steve. Yeah, and there is no Superman when it comes to this. Unfortunately, your discs, you know, the, the substance that's in the disc, it's like a jelly substance in between, right? So you have, yeah, you're, you got the, you know, each disc is made up. It's a, on the outside, it's tough. It's a very tough, the outer layer is fibrous, and, but inside it's a jelly like inner layer. So once the, that jelly starts wearing off, and, you know, it's kind of like taking, uh, kind of like an, uh, yeah, ice cream sandwich. You have the wafer on each side in the middle. You've got the you get the ice cream in the middle and you smash it together. And and once that gets worn out, once again, there is no coming back. There is no Superman. You can you can inject yourself with as much cortisone as you want into the disc and dull the pain all you want, but it's not gonna heal it. You know, so um, unfortunately, the more you do it, the worse it's gonna get, you know, to the point where surgeries becomes the only option and um it's really really it really sucks but that's part of weight training you know our bodies are are not robots we're not made of steel we're not made of iron we're we're made of very fibrous things you take a you know you get a fish right you catch a fish with teeth and you stick your hand inside the fish mouth and the fish bites your hand you're gonna have a lot of damage to your hand you know, we're not, but you take a piece of steel and you put it in the fish's mouth and the fish bites it, it's not going to have any problems. So, I mean, that's, we're just very, 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 you know, very sensitive creatures. So when you weight train years and years, you got gravity working against you, the weight training, you're just compressing the disc over and over and over. This is what happens. So really at the end of the day, the only thing you could do guys is be smart with your training you need to take, you need to do, learn what deloading is. You need to take breaks from the gym. You need to do yoga. You need to increase your flexibility, increase your mobility. That's your only hope. That's your only hope if you're going to last in this. Um, uh, and, and you guys who are in your teens and 20s, you're probably like, ah, Steve, you don't know what you're talking about. I'm fine. <laughs> well, what happens is over time, you, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. So it's better to try protecting yourself at a young age and do the proper maintenance. It's just like having a car. You do the proper maintenance on your car, your car is going to last longer. You don't do the proper maintenance. You wait till you start having problems, and then it's going to cost you a lot more money in the long run. So let me get into social. You want to touch on that, Mobster, and I'll get into social yeah, well, media. I'm just going to jump in here very quickly, Steve. Something that you just said sticks in my mind. Uh, I mean, I think I, I, I talk about in my training log on the forums uh, doing power squat machine and they're doing crazy numbers, 490 kilos 
a power slot machine. So it's very, very close to 1,100 pounds. And at the beginning, having warmed up with, uh, I think, uh, uh, 150, then 300, 300 kilos, the next one is 450, 490 kilos as it was yesterday. And I can kind of stand tall at the beginning. But when I'm tired at the end, it's that much more difficult for to pull the levers back in and put the safeties back on, come out, because essentially that amount of weight has compressed me, has pushed me down. I'm six foot three, but I bet I'll go off that machine six to and a half. And, you know, and, and that's something that Steve said about stretching and, and yoga, 100%. I don't stretch anything like enough. And I still try to do a little bit now and again. And I have days where I think, no, you're going to spend 15 minutes a day. You're going to do half an hour stretching or whatever else. 100% is close. And again, I've said it already, guys. You don't get to be a world-class athlete. And it doesn't matter what sport. It could be table tennis. It could be soccer. It could be pro ball. It could be basketball. It could be throwing a frigging dart. Uh, never mind bodybuilding or whatever else. You do not get to be a world-class, highly-ranked athlete in any of those kind of disciplines, even ballet or whatever. There will be an element of wear and tear. 100%. There has to be because you are doing something that the 99% of the population can't do and even less can do to your those that can can do it to your level and again if you are a world-class bodybuilder winning the Arnold Classic placing top three at the, Arnold, at the Olympia or in my case breaking world records national records European records or whatever or any kind of athlete in between you are doing things to your body that no one else has done or very very few people have done and therefore, there will be wear and tear. There will be stuff like that. I, I for example, have mentioned I, in my logs again, I talk about discomfort I've been having in my shoulders. That's probably a combination of wear and tear, uh, ligaments and hearing when they shouldn't hear. And some fact, Steve mentioned cortisone. I'm, I'm going to be sorting something like that very soon for my shoulder to see if I can free up there. I can't get my right arm above my head. I couldn't wave at you in a normal way with my right arm. It, then it goes up to a certain position. I have a tendonitis in my, my right elbow, and that's from throwing around those crazy hammer coals that I mentioned in my training log and doing the pension pressing that I've been doing for, for years and years. And I've had issues with my disc, as I mentioned before, and again on my log, 2016, spending 16 weeks out of the gym, no training except for grippers, literally laying on the floor uh, on, a, on a folded duvet for eight weeks and then laying in bed for eight weeks. I had to do stuff around the house. It was, I had to crawl around the house, sweat dripping just to do things around the house as I live on my own my girlfriend's not over and doing stuff like that and that came from the gym it came from the wear and tear it came from pushing my body to that level and being a british champion and a european champion it came from doing that stuff and it's nothing what i'm talking about is uncommon i have all the guys that i know that are crazy crazy strong and i'm fortunate because of making a name for myself in what i did that i know some super 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 strong people and they've all had Injury, bicep tears are not uncommon in strongman. Quad tears, we know that have got, happened to bodybuilders. Uh, one of my buddies has had a bicep tear. He's had issues with his Achilles tendon. That was in a strongman event again. Uh, you just recently had a um, uh, Canadian bodybuilder, sorry, Canadian strength athlete who tore both quads of the squat event, uh, world's strongest man, or, or event just recently, tore both quads in, on, a, on, a, on a squat event. Uh, Caron, I believe his name is. So, yeah, you are doing that. That was 700 pounds for reps. Uh, so, I think actually, I tell a lie, that particular competition was a max squat and it got up to 900 something pounds, Steve. So, yeah, 
that the stuff that we do in order to be the best athlete we possibly can is not necessarily healthy. And Dennis is a very good example or bad example, depending on the point of view, that stuff out there. So again, guys, this is a sort of advice that we like to give when we talk about getting you checked out for your bloods and whether it's allowing deloading. A good example, and this is something that occurred to me, Steve, for myself. So when I'm, I, I, I try to peak in terms of my physical strength for certain lifts twice a year, so roughly every six months. Uh, typically, towards the end of that time was when I might use some sort of a performance-enhancing drug. Uh, and a good marker in the sand for me is to build up, build up, and build up to the point where once a year I can bench press 170 kilograms. And at the age of 57, I'm quite happy to do that. When I'm not on cycle, I deload. I restart the program. I'll do a lot more volume and a lot less weights. When I came back from the injury, I was back at 60% deliberately. So, and I will take a lot of, if I'm doing 170 kilo bench press on, then off, I can do a touch and go 150, but I might not go much past 140. And I'll spend the next six months going back up very slowly to those big numbers again. And that's quite simply because in the old days, I didn't do that kind of stuff. And I would train, 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 come off cycle and try to do the same ways. Well, that's just ridiculous. It's not possible, guys. You can't do a performance enhanced cycle and then come off and still be the same level as performance enhanced. That's not kind of how it works. And it's a head fuck. And so it's, it's both good for your mental thing that you go, well, I'm okay with losing some of my strength because I've deliberately detrained. I've deliberately changed stuff up. I'm not trying to do 170 on the bench. I might do something else. I might use a, a bench machine. I might do something else completely or dumbbells. That's the kind of stuff that you guys could do. And then again, a few months down the road, you can start training to hit back those peak levels. And especially when you're younger, surpass them to get to the point where you see just how much you could do. It makes sense, guys. And it's quite simple because we learn very quickly from competing, from doing this stuff to a high level, that you can't have your foot flat to the floor constantly and last analogy which I've, I've heard people talking about it's a good example it says you've got a ferrari and you go out and there's a as a line on a taco that's the red line and that's where the engine's screaming sometimes with ferraris that's the sweet spot that's the noise but if you go past the red line you're in the seven thousand then you've gone into the eight thousand nine thousand rpm now park it on your drive put the key in ignition and rev it up so 9,000 RPM and keep it there for 15 or 20 minutes. And now do that every day and imagine just how fucked your engine is. But we try sometimes to do that with our bodies. Can't be done. If you keep doing that every day with your Ferrari, you're going to need the engine replaced. You need the gears replaced. That's kind of what we try to do sometimes with these sports. We try to be Uber all the fucking time when we can't. And eventually, like Dennis, you end up with issues of pushing, 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 and four herniated discs and recurring on operation. And trust me, when it gets to that point, it's very rare to see you come back from there. So take our advice, listen to Dennis's story of a world-class athlete, what happened to him, and learn from it, guys. Pay attention. Don't rev that engine so hard. Take some time out every so often. I understand not wanting to, but this is one of those things you've got to. It's the same when it comes to performance on arts and drugs. We don't like you guys being on constantly. We certainly don't like you guys being on constant high levels. And what, what you can get away with when you're younger, you absolutely cannot get away with when you're older. Remember, looking at, looking at Dennis again, he was doing a crazy, crazy, crazy well right up to the time he had that operation. Those were his best years. 
And then, literally, I was saying, the time that you had this operation, he was having 2015, fourth place, 2016 as the operation. 2017, not the same bodyguard. It's as simple as that. 24 months, boom, boom, boom. Pay attention, learn from it. Realize you could have to take your foot off the gas. You do need to deload, as Steve says. You do need to, and as we've said previously in other podcasts, get yourself checked out. Make sure everything's sticking over. Get massaged, get deep tissue, all of that kind of stuff, Steve. Let's talk about his training. Yeah, we have to talk about his social media a little bit first. Okay. And I'll let you talk about his training. So he's got a bunch of videos on YouTube. Big, big, big guy on YouTube. Also, his Instagram mobster. Can you believe one million followers on Instagram? Wow, that's not bad for a big side bodybuilder. So he has several industry brands, Gym 80, Shike Sports or Chic Sports, and NP Nutrition. So he's a big, big guy on uh, social media. He's got a big following. And uh, he also offers coaching and training. So, um, yeah, just just don't um, – I hope, I hope he's not coaching people to, um, you know, overtrain and, and fuck up their desk yeah. the way he did. That's just the one thing. So I can't talk, though. I'd be a hypocrite because I fucked up. My- <laughs> you and me both, way. buddy. So, yeah. But no one told me. No one told me back then. You know what people would tell me that I would train with? Oh, just push through it. Just yeah. push through it. Oh, just push it. It's bullshit. easy to say that when it's not your body. Yeah. You know? So at the end of the day, there is no push through it. you got to like just it's okay to take a break. It's okay. But, you know, we, you know, we, we've talked about that enough. Let's get into his training, Mobster. Uh, how did this guy train? To get to this level, obviously, he had to have been training like a maniac. Right. So around the time that he was at his best, as you say in the article, Steve, and I'll specifically pick a workout in a second, he would have been doing what is for or for many of us a higher level or uh, volume for his training. And uh, talks about uh, various sources tell us that it wasn't at all uncommon for him to doing 30 sets of workout. Uh, and again, I, I think I, I, I probably average 12. We've got a couple of other guys that do the logs online and they're doing like nine, 10, 11 exercises and two, three sets of time. So that's 30, 40 sets. That is a lot of volume. Now for, if you are doing a lot of volume, you can't be doing a lot of weight. Although back in the day at certain times of his career, uh, Dennis has moved some decent poundage, not, not world-class. We're not talking about 800 pound squats here guys, but some decent weights for the volume he's doing. And it again, following a four and five day split, alternating uh, muscle groups and doing typically sometimes two uh, training sessions or two body parts a session should I say uh, in terms of um, I'll, get, I'll pick one workout because he was famous for that width that I've mentioned earlier on shoulders and I watched a video for this uh, he talks uh, the viewer through his workout in doing dumbbell shoulder press I think he sometimes was switching up with machines one arm cable side laterals or side raises both of those would be three to four sets. Partial bent over rear delt raise. So not completely bent over in the waist here, guys. It's kind of kind of a 45 degree thing. Uh, and then when you see him doing it, there's a little bit of the side as well as the rear delt engaged in, in, in the uh, exercise. I didn't notice that specifically. And then using a rear delt machine, which is a much more isolation type movement. It's similar to a pec tech, except you're facing into the pad instead of facing outwards. They have longer levers off to the side. Some of you guys will have these machines in your gyms. You can even use the pec deck in the same way, but you have to sort of uh, adapt and overcome and focus with lighter weights on the rear delt. 
And what you get from that, guys, and arguably it worked for Dennis, is a the 3D. And that is front, so anterior, posterior, and lateral delts, all incredibly well developed, like cantaloupes from the shoulder joint from the end of your um, the bones there. And it the illusion of which, especially with the small waist that Steve talked about, is, is fantastic. Um, I'll, one or two other things here. He says, and I agree with this actually, free weights are mandatory. This is not one of those things where what's better, free weights or machines? I'm not saying that at all. But uh, because of the muscle requirement, for example, in a seating press, and especially so if, if you compare dumbbells to barbell and barbells to machine, you are required to stabilize the bar, or in the case of dumbbells, you're stopping them swinging around and pounding them on the side of the head. So you, your stabilizers, and indeed your shoulders are working that much harder just to push, let's say, for example, 30 kilo dumbbells. There's less stabilization required to push a 60 kilo barbell and less stabilization again to push 60 kilos, 132 pounds on a machine. And so therefore you're doing more work with the free weights than you are compared to machines. And that's exactly what he's getting at here. He talks about the quality of workouts. This is something that's really, really, really difficult for most people. And you can go to a million gyms and see guys throwing the weights around. I've been as guilty of that, Steve, moving weight from A to B. If I'm a strength athlete or a weightlifter, I'm not, or even a weight trainer, and not a bodybuilder. It's weight A to B. And that might mean throwing it and using momentum or whatever else. For a bodybuilder, you want to be the complete opposite. Moderate weights, but really, really, really focusing on the muscle. So he's talking about that when he discusses the quality of his workouts. 10 to 12 reps. Arguably, it varies a little bit between one person and next day, but for the most part, especially with the volume that we're talking about, I'm thinking 60% of one rep max. And basically, he wants lactic acid. He's looking for that burn. And he's getting that for, in his case, 10 to 12 reps for most muscles. I would argue that you probably go a little bit higher. Planning workouts. Here's a guy with the genetics to arguably win the Mr. Olympia, certainly winning the, the, the Arnold and being the Arnold champion. And he talks about planning a workout. The amount of guys that think they, they can gush Joe to the gym and wing it that aren't Arnold champions, it's, it's in their millions, if not hundreds of millions, Steve. So having a plan and, be, and even if you don't have a plan, you just have to know how to get the best out of your body. And you've got both his genetics and that knowledge that applies here. Be better and keep your workouts charged up. I'd actually, I've changed up even. I actually agree with this again. Um, I've done it, and I know Steve's done this, when we've taken people that train nicely, decently, and we take them to another level. Sometimes we take them to another simply because they're training with us and they paid us for as a coach or they've asked us to put them through a session or whatever. And then what you can go back with that says, why wasn't they pushing themselves that hard before? Uh, so the idea that you aim to be better is important, that you, you can keep your workouts changed up. That's probably as much, I think, for mental uh, refreshers as it is for physical. But also you need to have this attitude that you are trying to succeed. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you're doing a world-class weight, you know, world championship level weight, or that you've got the world's biggest biceps or something like that. But some part of your training, even when you're in a deload phase of your training, is about being a better athlete today than you was yesterday. And that drive, that baby, baby step forward is going to keep you 
motivated and keep you as best for your age, for your condition, for your genetics as you possibly can be. Best for that moment in time, even on a deload. So there's stuff like that. In it. And, and I agree with all of those things, Steve. I think there's, a, a, as a very, very quick example, taking an athlete at the gym recently who weighs 220 something pounds, 17 English stone all the time. He will be the close to 50 years of age, certainly in his mid to late 40s. And a decent amount of muscle, if not genetically specially blessed, and popping him on the leg press after a, a, a squat movement. And he says, Oh, I only do five plates a side. So that's uh, 10 plates, five plates a side is, is 200 kilograms, 440 pounds. And I said, You've been doing that much for years. And the reason why you haven't grown, et cetera, et cetera, is because you've been doing that much for years. So we're going to put another plate on the side and we're going to take you to a place you don't normally go to. And the simple fact of the matter is, he was more than capable of doing six plates aside, 240 kilos, uh, close to 500 pounds. But he wasn't. He was more than 500 pounds, in fact. But he wasn't. So we had an interesting workout. He had an interesting workout. I, I certainly enjoyed pushing him through that. You have to be that kind of thing. If you do the same thing all the damn time, guys, you're not going to change. And, and Dennis has said you're taking that, and you don't get to be a world-class bodybuilder by doing the same thing all the fucking damn time. You know, he's going to have just different workouts. Another thing that comes with being a professional bodybuilder that must apply to Dennis is knowing what your weaknesses are, filling in the gaps of your physique. And again, the difference between, and I mentioned this for the previous show that we've just done, someone who was 16th in the world at one point and won some good competitions in his native uh, country of Canada versus being an Arnold Classic winner and a top three uh, Mr. Olympia uh, placing athlete it's, it's a difference and the difference is way 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 less gaps in the physique a more aesthetic look certain genetic advantages but also knowing how to bring those areas that are weak up and so you can change up your workouts to do that having either yourself or someone else look at your physique and go do you know what that bicep tying could be better can you do something with your front delt to make that look better can we make your triceps pop more is there a way of posing them better can you learn how better to contract when you're posing? That's the kind of stuff you need to be of that kind of analytical eye. And the same applies to other sports, pro ball and whatever else. Am I fast for the first half of the match, but I've got no energy in the second? How can I improve my energy for the second half? Uh, if I'm kicking, uh, is it a great long kick, but it goes nowhere near the goal? or And so on. Just getting that stuff down and realising sometimes that there's a weakness or an element that needs to be worked on. So, yeah, the, Dennis sends me very, very analytical. Yeah, back to you, Steve. Talk about his diet now. Yep. And his diet yep. was uh, was interesting. Very tight waist because he was eating extremely clean. Now, I think a big reason for that is he knew what it was like not to have food on the table growing up very poor. So now he treats food as a blessing instead of a treat. Yeah. So his workout, you know, his diet, it's not really that complicated. In the off-season – he was doing six to seven meals per day, lots of chicken, lots of rice, lots of steak, potatoes, oatmeal, banana slash apple. See a lot of potatoes. You guys over there in Europe, mobster, I think you guys eat a lot more potatoes than we do in the U.S. Well, you, you eat have a lot of fries. potatoes, right? <laughs> huh? You have all those fries. You have all those fries in your fast food diets, which, of course, is the same. Yeah, if you, take away, if you take away, the, take away the potatoes, take away French fries. 
I would yeah, say yeah, Americans right. eat zero potatoes. Yeah. You're not having mashed potatoes, so, except yeah. Thanksgiving. It's it's you're too having... hard. You have to forgive us, America. It's too hard to make potatoes. I mean, you know, <laughs> it's too hard. It's, it's, it takes it's too long. It takes too long. You know, so we don't. We, we don't so, um, yeah, I, I would love to see like going to a fast food restaurant, just like ordering potatoes. Yeah. So, what would you like, sir? Yeah, I'll I'll take um, you know potatoes. Uh, I think that'd be hilarious. Or uh, going to a restaurant, just ordering potatoes. Yeah, yeah. What, what would you like? I, I'm gonna order some pota- a couple potatoes. I think that would be hilarious. Um, so lots of potatoes though. Oatmeal, bananas, slash apple. So in season, he ate four meals per day: fish, oatmeal, eggs, nuts, and greens. You don't hear nuts very often in bodybuilding. Oh, this is like the one of the f- first time. So raw nuts, I love raw nuts. I love raw nuts mm-hmm. in, in moderation. Sometimes your teeth may not love raw nuts, so just be careful with your teeth. But yeah, I'm big. Um, I'm big, big on nuts for sure. And they're healthy oils, Steve. Exactly, they have the very good fats. Yeah. Very good Mine fats. Is. Yep. Make sure they're raw, though. Make sure they're raw and organic. You don't want to get the uh, the the nuts like in the container. You know, full of they put all those refined oils and crap and salt mm. and all that crap in it. So make sure you get the raw nuts. I like that. Um, so he's he said in interviews, this was an interesting mobster. Maybe you can touch on this a little bit. He said he hated eating like a bodybuilder, but had to do it to compete with his peers. So what do you think about that? Uh, yeah, I mean, if you take the typical, what we see as a typical bodybuilder's diet, there's an element of that. And I think there might even be a thing here when he's talking about the sheer volume of food, Steve. And something that you and I, again, just touched on the previous podcast when we talk about the, the high levels of protein, so I suspect it's a combination of those things. So, for example, uh, certainly of his time, the meal frequency that these guys were having, eight meals a day, seven meals a day, there, there is a time, and I've done this very, very briefly, where for the most part, I enjoy eating. You don't get to be my size and not enjoy eating. And uh, I've, I've mentioned being on certain cycles where my appetite was... I was world class, you know, eating one meal and you're thinking about the next meal. But when it comes to sometimes the monotony and the sheer frequency, and I'm thinking, for example, of the recent uh, fight this weekend that we just had with Eddie Hall, and there was a part of uh, his strongman journey, not his boxing journey, but strongman journey, where his wife was kind of having to force feed him. He says he was eating so many thousands of calories a day, 11, 12 thousands of calories a day, and training for four hours and recovering for four hours. And in order to get the sheer amount of food in that was required to get his body weight to be this crazy level, when, for example, I think it was 420 pounds during the 500 kilo, 1100 pound deadlift, that she had him sitting at the table and she was feeding him like a baby. And he says, I was almost in tears eating this food, but I knew that I had to get my wife, Alex, to help me eat it. Now, you'd imagine somehow that the bodybuilding diet, which can be in and of itself kind of super crazy healthy if you do it right, there is sometimes a part of that, especially when you're dieting for a competition, when your energy levels are all over the place and you're sitting there and you're looking down at your rice and your chicken or your rice and fish and you go, I guess I better eat this if I want to be the best. I better eat this, better eat this if I want to be the champion. But my fucking God, I can't. I can't face meal number eight. I thought I could. I, I was kind of looking forward to it, but now I'm sitting there. Number seven's still not gone down properly, and I've got a force, even if it's only 500 calories. 
meal number eight in, and it's the same fucking food I had three hours ago. It's the same fucking food I had two hours ago. Yeah, Steve, there are times when it is not a joy. This is not cordon blue, guys. This is not super duper. You can spice things up. I've talked about that. You can vary a little bit, but ultimately it becomes a job and it's a necessity. And then the pleasure's gone. So I reckon that's what he's getting at here, Steve, when the pleasure goes out of it and it becomes a job of work, something like putting fuel into a car, you just got to fucking do it. You're not eating for enjoyment. You're eating literally for function. And when that happens, sometimes it, it it's a drag. It's why guys go crazy after a competition and go and hit the pizza places and cola and ice cream and do that kind of stuff and blow up like idiots. It, 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 and, and especially... There's even an argument, Steve, for this stuff when it comes to dieting for bodybuilders. And I think Dorian's talked about this, where almost, if you want to be the best, you have, have to do this. You have to do it. And the guys have the most amazing genetics. Dexter Jackson is a good example I've used before. If I've got the best genetics in the world and I don't do if it fits your macros, why do you think you can do if it fits your macros? You have to eat this way to be the blade. You have to eat this way to be world-class. But for fun and enjoyment, no. So that's probably what he's getting at, Steve. It'd become a drag. I bet he was saucing up his food like a motherfucker after a competition. And he was going out and taking a wife or a girlfriend or whatever and taking a family and going somewhere and just having a... Just give me the most flavours you possibly can, people. I need the flavours. I need nothing but... Nothing that's even beginning to look like bland. Uh, I, I, I don't think he's ever going to be the kind of guy that's going to hit a greasy burger bar, but certainly go maybe to some sushi place, put them sauces on, and just let them flavors wash over his palate, Steve. There you go. Yeah, I viewed it the same way. I, I You can look at it two different ways. I can see how you can look at it through the way after rereading, uh, you know, after thinking about it. You can view it two ways. You could say, I'm tired of eating like a bodybuilder because I'm forced to eat all this bland, healthy food. Or I'm tired yeah. of eating like a bodybuilder because I'm having to spend so much money on groceries, eat so much okay. food. And as you said, I had this meal in front of me and I'm not, I don't feel like eating it. I'm sick of eating so much food every fucking day. So I think in his case, it was the second, second thing. It wasn't the first thing. I don't think he mind eating clean. I don't mind eating clean. Once you, no. if you're used to eating clean foods, you start enjoying clean foods. To me, there's nothing more delicious than chicken brown rice and broccoli meal there's nothing more delicious to me um than that i i love it with some coconut with some with some raw coconut water that's beautiful beautiful to me because um i you get used to it you know after a while so he grew up poor to him that's nothing wrong with that but i mean you grow up eating nothing but restaurant food and fast food and arby's every day you're going to look at that food uh, being, oh, I don't want to eat it. In his case, it's just like the sheer eating six, seven, eight meals a day gets really fucking annoying after a while. And that's the way I viewed it. So touch on that a little bit, Mobster, and then we'll kind of get in, we'll get into a steroid cycle. So the last thing, and I remember watching this from a Dennis James video, funny enough, there's a, I think it's funny, Rami was already with him. So a couple of years ago, uh, the last Olympia, but one. And Dennis's wife, who's from Thailand, she's cooking up a storm. And what she did there is something that you and I have talked about in this, in this podcast. You take the food and learn how to cook. And I mean, I don't just mean zap it in the microwave, guys. I mean, cook, cook. And 
learn how to spice and learn how to flavor. And as a good example, in that video that I'm talking about, I think he refers to his wife being able to come up with sauces and seasonings and using a mortar and pestle to grind up the herbs and the salts and whatever else they're putting in there in such a way as to have low sodium sources, low sodium uh, seasonings, uh, taking some of the Thai herbs and uh, seasonings from that country and from other countries and mixing them up and making your own way of, of, of producing. For example, I think you and I have talked about this before. You can have a plain good old fashioned baked in the oven chicken breast. But that's, that's okay very briefly and then it gets super tedious real quick. And if that's your diet, then, then you can have chicken seasoning. You can now find stuff that's low sodium chicken seasoning. You could add a curry powder to it. So it's the same damn chicken breast as it was before, same amount of moisture, same amount of protein, et cetera, et cetera, but you've added a spice. So now you're giving your palate something to work with. You can have, you can have a lemon chicken and that was literally squirt a lemon on it and do the salt and all that kind of stuff. You can have skin on skin off and you can cook up a storm. You could have it as a stir fry but you could use a healthy oil and stuff like that. So learning how to cook, learning how to vary, and yet at the same time, you're still only having those three or four ingredients that you mentioned, Steve. So it might be some sort of bamboo shoots and a chicken and a sauce that you've made yourself. And it sounds like a pain in the ass, guys, but for example, the sauces and the seasonings, you can make up quite large batches with not that many ingredients, pot them up, stick them in the freezer, stick them into a container, get them out and spoon them over that. And you could do the chicken breast thing, the one, the tip I've given before, which is take 24, 30 chicken breasts, put them on a huge tray in the oven and section them off. This one's flavored this way, this one's flavored this way, this one's flavored this way, this one's flavored this way. At the same time, you've got one of those rice cookers and you could do the same again. You could cook four different batches of rice, one with a chicken stock, one with a beef stock, one with a vegetable stock, one with something else. And now you've got four different kinds of rice and four different flavors of chicken. And that's just using chicken and rice. That's just that single example. So there are ways and means around it. Um, you do, it doesn't have to be like a prisoner in some sort of death camp eating gruel. It can be made interesting. Yet the only problem you're going to have, of course, is you're going to be tired from the gym. You're going to be depleted. And this kind of stuff might all be a giant pain in the ass. And there are some guys that kind of almost want to make that sacrifice, which is what I was getting at earlier. Almost want to say, if no one else is doing what I'm doing, this is the reason why I'm going to win and they're not. So there's an element of that, but it doesn't need to be like that. And most of you listeners are not going to be competing. Most of you don't need to take it to that extreme. So you can use the advice that we've given. Let's get into the PED, Steve, as always. So Wolf never admitted to using steroids openly. So it's understandable. That's his, that's his thing. Living in Germany, he likely had somewhat easy access to anabolic steroids and probably started using them at a young age. So here's a steroid cycle that we think he could have used during his peak years. So let's start off with the old HGH and insulin stack. And, you know, HGH and insulin together gives a really good partitioning effect. When you're, look, when you're that big, 300 pounds at his body fat, and then you cut down ahead of your competition to 260, 270, you know that's HGH. There's HGH involved. You can't build, a, you can't be a huge monster like that and be low body fat without, without HGH use. So let's just be honest about it. When you're running all this HGH, still very important to use insulin. I've spoken about this on podcasts to drop your blood sugar back down. 
And then that gives you your partitioning effect. So the foods that you're eating, that's why you see these bodybuilders they eat so much protein, they eat so much food, so many meals, because they're able to take advantage of those meals. Now, a normal person, you eat six, seven, eight meals a day, you're just going to get fat. It's not going to benefit you. You're just going to get fat. You're just going to tear up your stomach, which bodybuilders are doing anyway. But in their case, they're able to partition that food and make that food work in their body to their advantage. So 15 to 25 IUs of HGH and 10 to 12 IUs of insulin per day total is not that unthinkable uh, no. for a guy at this level. Not for them. The next one, 1,000 milligrams a week of Omnidren blend. So Omnidren, because of his European roots, you know, um, Omnidren is, is exactly like Sustanol. It's a, it's a blend of four different testosterone esters all in one. And, you know, people in Europe, they like these blends. Uh, in your leck of the woods, mobster, you guys are into Sustanol. And then in Europe, especially Central and East Europe, they're into Omnidren. And used to be a little different. The formula used to be a little different between Omnidren and Sustanin, but today they're both the same exact thing. They just call it Omnidren. It's just the brand name. So in this case, I'd say 1,000 milligrams a week of Omnidren, and then 1,200 milligrams a week of Trembolone and Enthate, long esters, and then the 1,000 milligrams a week of Decadurabolin. So a guy at his size, I think that's a good stack. You got the Omnidren, you got the Trend, you got the Deca. And then, of course, you're going to throw in the 1,200 milligrams a week of the Mosteron. And I they, think they, um, I think this is a reasonable cycle for him. It comes out to about 4,400 milligrams a week of injectables. And I think this is likely what these guys are messing around with, especially in those years. And um, it, it worked. It worked incredibly well to build him a huge physique. And he was able to manipulate his body to have a tight waist, huge shoulders, huge quads. And this got him top four, top three, Mr. Olympia, you know, a, a cycle like this. So what else, what else, uh, what else do you think he was messing around with? I mean, think that as you say, Steve, looking at this cycle, I don't think necessarily this is too far away from what an athlete of his uh, uh, ability would have been using. But what just stood out to me as I was looking at the list here was the 200 milligrams a day of Proviram versus uh, 80s, 70s and 80s cycle when you would be 200 milligrams a week, guys, a week. Uh, the famous Arnold cycle has been argued about and argued about and argued about and best guess, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm pretty sure that the number for that is somewhere between two and 400 a week for Arnold. And the suggestion that Arnold was pushing it more than anybody else in terms of what he was doing versus what they were doing. So here we go, the 200 milligrams a day versus 200 milligrams a week back in the day. 150 milligrams a day of wind stroke. Both of these, again, we're talking about a cycle leading up to a competition. So this is not off season, and it's not in the last few weeks when you're looking to get super ripped, super dry, bringing that every single detail. But in that area just before, again, of its time, and maybe not specifically for Dennis, excuse me, but rearing its ugly head because the guys were all sort of messing around with this, if not at that level, on the fringe of that level, and that's DMP. And of course, and we know that because of the tests that were taking place around that time, we know who was getting caught at diuretics. Now, not on this list, Steve, and probably more 
because they've come into their own in the last few years. If Dennis was still competing now, I would add some peptides to this list. Now, of course, these are growth hormone derivatives. That's where they've kind of all come from. Now, whether these would be useful in the wear and tear that he'd managed to put on his body or not, Steve, I don't know. But certainly in terms of training and issue recovery and so on and so forth, I would throw in at least TB500 or BPC156 uh, or 157, whichever it is. And these, both of these are healing peptides to try as best as possible to negate the wear and tear and to deal with the, the uh, underlying, perhaps that's probably the best way of putting it, uh, health issues and injuries that he wasn't aware of and then became aware of to try and recover as best as possible. Uh, and again, for fairly short periods of time, peptides in and of themselves can be relatively expensive, but they don't require huge amounts. Uh, certainly, so those particular things. And again, and again, this was a difference between a cycle then and the cycle now. So, for example, you can throw a couple of psalms in the GW springs to mind, just as a way of doing things differently. And because you don't have to have your foot flat down to the floor when it comes to this kind of stuff. Uh, in terms of the overall amounts, you can see that the that Steve's about right around four and a half grams a week. This is what a Olympia or Arnold class athlete is going to be doing. And that's unfortunate uh, in terms of the sport overall, because a genetically blessed, a genetically gifted athlete versus the average Joe or even a good gym hog who's not quite as genetically blessed does not need to be doing these kind of things. For example, on a forum, we never, and we've had people accuse us of otherwise. And I know for the fact the whole time I've been on a forum, We've never pushed DMP. It's been mentioned by forum members, but it's always been us, moderators, and any of the guys that rep or give regular advice. No one is pushing. Even the odd one or two that tried it don't push DMP. Diuretics, you have to be real, real, real careful with guys again. Moderation, use properly, et cetera, et cetera. And again, for a competing bodybuilder, not for an average Joe just wants to drop some water. If you are dehydrated, if you are depleted, if you are in a condition that a top professional bodybuilder should be in, and then you mess with diuretics, there are problems awaiting you. And that has been the case a couple of times. And again, I've mentioned, may mention this before, the difference between appearing visually to look amazingly healthy and in condition versus your actual health and how you actually feel on the day of a competition. And then throwing diuretics into that mix mix because it can mess up with um, your electrolytes and can give you issues with cramping which you don't want on stage it can leave you tired which you don't want on stage and you, all the kind of stuff that comes with being a top top professional bodybuilder and needing to be in that place where very few need to go and there we can see these kind of things four and a half grams a week is not something we'd have, have not even for an intermediate bodybuilder and certainly not for a guy that just goes to the gym to look good and the dmp no and as best as possible to avoid diuretics and absolutely have to. I can think of one or two examples, Steve, when we've got a couple of guys that come on the forums, a couple of ladies as well, where they're doing, they, they model and they're in reasonable condition already. And even then we've pushed more the natural diuretics like dandelion root and a couple of other things on them as a way and manipulation of a few days out before say a, a modeling shoot versus them using drug levels or pro level, bodybuilder levels of diuretics, et cetera, to, to drop water and look especially good. I, I mean, crying out loud, guys, you're talking about this, male models. 
unless your abs are exposed, unless it's your physique that's on display, these things are very, very rarely necessary. And as after, after time, these people are really talking about what they feel they look like versus what they actually look like. You don't get to be working as a model if you don't look good already. You'd have to be seriously, seriously out of shape. And then what the hell are you doing being a model and letting your, that happen to you? So you've got all of those kind of stuff going on there. Uh, ultimately, I, I'm going to say go back to this, Steve, um, for my final thoughts and then let you do the same. The background that Dennis has come from, the appreciation it gave him for the lifestyle, and when something else I mentioned in the pre-show, and this is more a professional athlete thing as well, and I'll go back to the other thing very quickly, um, comes from a German-speaking neck of the woods. There are early DVD slash VHS videos online now of him talking just in German and end up moving, and as I believe he does now, living in Las Vegas, becoming a world-class bodybuilder, which requires a certain level of intelligence, despite the fact you might think otherwise sometimes, um, if it's just knowledge of nutrition, if it's knowledge of PDs, if it's knowledge of training, and specifically because we know that he coaches now. Travelling around the world, talking to fans, talking to magazine reporters, getting interviewed online, as people do now, of course, doing the social media, requires a level of um, uh, being able to speak English that it never required when he was in his early part of the sport. And so I, I made a point in a pre-show of saying, I find it interesting how often a foreign language speaking athlete ends up speaking very, very good English out of necessity of uh, commercial purposes and social media and so on and so forth. They may never lose the accent and there may be the odd word they trip over, but they speak a dance site better fucking English than I speak German or Syrian or wherever they've come from. Trust me on that one. So that's a part of being a professional bodybuilder. And having the background that you come from sounds to me kind of tough. Not having a great amount of food on the table, having those formative years has made him uh, certainly up to his physical peak an awesome bodybuilder because he, he would have known what it was to be poor. Steve said he knows what it was to be you know, a tough to do 70 hours a week as he was doing when he was in his teens. I, I, don't, I think in my life, Steve, I've only done those kind of hours a few, a few times as a much, much younger man than I am right now. So this is a hard, hard upbringing. It might not be the worst that we're ever going to do in one of his podcasts, but it's certainly up there in the top 10 of the tough background to come from and aspire to becoming a world-class athlete and winning arguably the second best bodybuilding competition in the world and be in the third place in the best bodybuilding competition in the world in a very competitive decade to get to where he got to. It's kind of a shame that perhaps he might have had another year or two hadn't he had the neck issue. So, yeah, I think all things being considered, Steve, Dennis Wolf is a great, great bodybuilder. We can learn a great deal from him and is be admired for the journey that he's had from where he started from to where he got to at his absolute best. What do you, what do you think before I do the disclaimer? Yeah, I'm very impressed with his showings and these competitions more than anything. I'd rather be more impressed with that than someone who got first place at Mr. Olympia and then Easy. 10th place, 15th place, 17th place, et cetera. So it's more impressive to me just to be consistent top five year after year after year. So that's what was impressive. And he won five really tough competitions. So to, me, to my mind, he should go down as one of the greatest bodybuilders of, of his time for sure. So definitely. Yep. Take us into the slammer. It was a great show. Great. So 
as always, guys, please note we are not doctors and the opinions that we offer in this podcast are hours and hours alone. It's our view and based on our experience and views on the topic. Our podcasts are for informational purposes and entertainment only. The freedom of speech and personal opinion.